Hello again, friends, and welcome on into episode 114 of the SCO Show, proudly a part of the Pat's Pulpit Podcast Network and brought to you by the great folks at SB Nation. My name is Mark Schofield. Happy to be back in the big chair for today, Thursday, June 11th, 2020. Today's show, Metrics That Matter. It's been a while since we talked about this. This is part of an ongoing series I've got this summer over at USA Today, the Touchdown Wire, where I look at one statistic per team from the 2019 season and talk about either why that matters for the team in, in terms of something they need to fix or in a few instances, two of which we're going to get to today, why that stat shows why they can be successful both in the past and in the future. And so we're going to talk NFC East, NFC West today. We already did the AFC East a couple of shows ago. So we're going to talk about some other teams around the league because that's what we do here at this podcast and other podcasts in the summer. We look at the rest of the league before we start focusing all of our attention back on the New England Patriots. A couple of reminders before we dive in. You know them by now. Follow along with the hijinks. And Mark Schofield on the Twitter machine, the good old Bird app. Check out the work of places like Matt Waldman's Rookie Scouting Portfolio, three SB Nation websites, Big Blue View, Bleeding Green Nation, where I co-host the QB Factory with Michael Kiss. We talked some Hunter S. Thompson, of all people, in the most recent show. And of course, right here at Pat's Pulpit. And yes, Touchdown Wire, the national vertical over part of the USA Today Wire network covering the NFL, Doug Ferrar and I. We're doing a lot of stuff right now, metrics that matter. Obviously, we're talking about you know bigger picture stuff, such as today, recording this on Wednesday, a bunch of NFL players, including Tom Brady, including Drew Brees, uh, signed on to a, league, a letter with the Players Coalition seeking an end. And this is a letter to Congress seeking an end to the doctrine of qualified immunity. I've got a piece over a touch on wire, which you can read. Basically, the doctrine of qualified immunity makes it difficult for citizens, potential plaintiffs, those injured by police officers to seek legal remedy, monetary damages as a result of what they perceive to be constitutional violations. And so if you want to get, get your law hat on, you could dive into that. This is an area I've got some lifetime experience with prior to becoming whatever it is I am now. But let's put all that stuff to the side, talk some NFC East metrics that matter, and we'll kick it off with the Dallas Cowboys. Now, they look primed to have a big year, right? A lot of people have looked at what Dallas did this offseason, particularly in the draft. But then, of course, you look Brennan Amari Cooper back, looking to get a deal done, a long-term extension with Dak Prescott. And then you look at the draft with CeeDee Lamb coming in. You know, people are looking at a three-wide receiver set of Amari Cooper, Michael Gallup, CeeDee Lamb, and thinking, that's pretty nice, obviously. But where I want to focus is on the defensive side of the football, right? Because in 2018, their defense was a big reason for some of their success. Yes, the Amari Cooper acquisition midseason helped and certainly paid dividends for Dak Prescott. But the Cowboys were a good defense in 2018. They were a top five unit against the run, allowing just 94.6 yards per game on the ground. And they were a top 15 unit against the pass, giving up just 234.7 yards per game, placing them 13th. That made them a pretty efficient defense. Over at Football Outsiders, defensive DVOA, the Cowboys were minus 3.5. 
That was a pretty good defense. That was ninth best in defensive DVOA in the 2018 season. Now, a big part of that was their run defense, which was minus 17.6%, which was fifth best in the league. These numbers were a huge improvement from 2017, where the Cowboys were the 25th ranked defense in DVOA. But they took a step back in 2019. Measured in terms of DVOA, the Cowboys defense in 2019 posted a DVOA of 3.0%, placing them 19th in the league. Then their weighted DVOA, which places an emphasis on recent performance, that saw the Cowboys check in with a weighted DVOA of 3.6, 21st in the league. And most glaring was their pass defense. Their pass defense, 13.2% in terms of DVOA against the pass, 23rd in the league. Some reasons for this, they failed to get pressure. On the opposing passer. 38 sacks, which was 19th in the league. 90 quarterback hits, 20th in the league. And we've heard Bill Belichick talk about how the pass rush and coverage work in concert. Cowboys had just seven interceptions last year. They were dead last. Tied with Arizona and Detroit. And so they need their defense to hold up their end of the bargain as we look to 2020. And letting Byron Jones might be a bit of a rough start to fixing these problems. But they added HaHa Clinton Dix, who's a solid safety. They added Gerald McCoy and Dontari Poe up front. Trayvon Diggs and, yes, Reggie Robinson come in via the draft to help in the secondary. And so they've made some acquisitions, made some additions that should help their defense. But it's certainly an area to watch. And we move from the Cowboys to the Giants. And with the Giants, it's simple. At least I think it is. Daniel Jones has to stop putting the football on the ground. He fumbled the ball 18 times last year. That was most in the league. Carson Wentz was second with 16. But beyond that, beyond that, he lost 11 of those. 11 of those. That was most in the league. Now, the 18 fumbles, that was obviously high. That was the most by the NFL, an NFL player since Dante Culpepper coughed it up 23 times back in 2002. But on those 11 lost fumbles, 10 of those led directly to opposition points, okay? Three of them were legitimate scoop and scores. I did this research myself. One against the Jets, one against the Cowboys in Week 8, one against the Lions in Week 7. On seven of the other lost fumble occasions... The offense either scored, the opposing offense either scored a touchdown or a field goal on their ensuing possession. The only time a lost fumble by Daniel Jones did not lead directly to points by the opposition was back in week one when Jones coughed it up at the end of a game that the Cowboys were winning and Dak Prescott just had to kneel down twice to end the game. That's not great. And a lot of people think, look, pressures, quarterback fumbles. Quarterbacks fumble a lot because you're exposed, you get blindside hits. Trivia question. Last time a non-quarterback led the league in fumbles. I'll circle back to that at the end of this segment. But think about that. I put it up on Twitter. You might have seen it. But quarterbacks fumble the ball a lot. So it's to be expected. The issues with Daniel Jones are part protection. People think, oh, well, you got to protect him better. And that's part of it. And they did expend some draft capital on the offensive line. They added Andrew Thomas in the first round, Matt Pard in the third round, Shane Lemieux in the fifth round, Kyle Murphy, an undrafted free agent who has some potential. 
but he needs to speed up his mental process. And if you look at, for example, his game against Arizona, where he was sacked eight times, I broke down all eight of those sacks over a big blue view. Some of them were protection problems. Some of them were coverage issues, but a lot of them were on Jones himself. So he needs to get faster with his mind so he can cut down on the amount of time he holds the football in the pocket and cut down on those fumbles. And the answer to that question, by the way, is Marcus Allen back in the 80s. That was the last time a non-quarterback led the NFL in fumbles. There you go. The more you know. Up next, the Philadelphia Eagles. And an issue with the Eagles that might be fixed in a different way than just adding people like we've seen with the past two teams is a scheme change. But first, the issue. Yardage after the catch, right? The Eagles are a West Coast offense. And West Coast offenses are built upon the idea of yardage after the catch. Ron Jaworski, in his book, The Game That Changed the Game, writing about Bill Walsh, quote, a critical element to the West Coast offense was the run after the catch, the ability of 49ers receivers to tackle on additional yardage once they caught the ball. Bill made a statistical study of quarterbacks who'd thrown for 3,000 yards and found that half of those yards came from the flight of the ball. The rest was yardage made afterward. Bill understood that the yardage after the catch is as dependent upon a quarterback's pass and accuracy as a receiver's ability to separate from defenders. The Eagles, in a West Coast system, built upon yardage after the catch. Not great. As a team, the Eagles ranked 15th with 1,876 yards after the catch. Nice counting statistic, middle of the pack. But there's a catch. That voice you hear in the back of your head right now, your 8th grade math teacher telling you you might need to do a little arithmetic here. They had the 5th most receptions in the league as a team in 2019. So when you do the math, you realize that Philadelphia averaged just 4.8 yards after the catch per reception. Where did that rank among all 32 teams? 28th. Only the Lions, the Dolphins, the Bears, and the Falcons had worse numbers. Now they averaged 4.8 yards per catch after the reception. The top five teams, the Niners with a 6.66, Titans 6.14, Raiders 6.08. Raiders are West Coast offense. Kansas City, West Coast-ish, 6.01 of the Packers, 5.85. Now you can even drill down on it a bit. The Eagles' best player in terms of yardage after the catch, Miles Sanders. He averaged 8.4 yards per reception last year after the catch. Tying up with Saquon Barkley and Latavius Martin for 12th most in the league. The issue, 12 of the top 15 players in yardage after the catch, running backs. And it makes sense. You know, your checkdowns, you know, third and 12, you're throwing a check down to the flat, you might get eight yards after the catch. Only Noah Fant, Debo Samuel, and A.J. Brown cracked the top 15. Everybody else was a running back. The next Eagles player in terms of yardage after the catch per reception Dallas Goddard, 5.7 yards after the catch per reception. That placed him 55th in the league. The next Eagles player and their top wide receiver in terms of yardage after the catch per reception, Nelson Aguilar, 3.2 yards after the catch per reception. That was 134th in the league. And he's not even there anymore. There's another way to look at this problem for the Eagles. NFL Next Gen Stats, they created expected yards after the catch per reception. They define it as the expected yards after the catch based on numerous factors using tracking data, such as how open the receiver is, how fast they're traveling, how many defenders and blockers are in the space, etc. The only eagle to have a positive yardage after the catch above expectation is Dallas Goddard. 
with a whopping plus 0.1. Aguilar had a minus 0.7. So it's a problem when your offense is built on yardage after the catch. The potential solution is to not be an offense based on yardage after the catch. They're becoming a downfield offense. And we've talked about it here on the show, right? You look at the moves they've made. Jalen Rager, people thought, myself included, good fit for a West Coast offense, but also explosive down the field, particularly on double moves. John Hightower, Quez Watkins, Marquise Goodwin, right? These are downfield guys. Jalen Hurts, downfield quarterback. And listen to Howie Roseman. Listen to Doug Peterson. This is that time of year when what they say is a window into what they think about their team. They want to be more aggressive downfield. They want to be a downfield offense. So their fix for this issue is to not make it an issue. Be more aggressive downfield so yardage after the catch doesn't matter. The final NFC East team we're going to talk about, Washington. And the issue there, their defense could not get off the field in 2019. And this is something Patriots fans, we saw it when these two teams played, right? They struggled to get off the field. Last year, the Redskins' defense allowed a third-down conversion on 111 of their 227 chances to get off the field and force a punt. That works out to a third-down conversion percentage of 48.9, which was the absolute worst in the league. Even worse than that, the Redskins allowed a fourth-down conversion in 63.2% of those situations, which was third-worst in the league. And when an opposing offense got into the red zone against them, they gave up a touchdown 61% of the time, ninth worst in the league. Overall, 41.9% of Washington's defensive drives ended with the offense scoring points fourth worst in the league. How do you fix it? Well, Chase Young, right? Get a guy like Chase Young, pair him with Montez Sweat and Ryan Kerrigan and Jonathan Allen, and you can collapse some pockets and get off the field on third down, right? That's what they're betting on. So those are some NFC East metrics that matter. Up next, some NFC West stuff. We're going to get two of those that aren't as bad as I think people make them out to be, at least one in particular. The other is more a a number that I think, as you'll see in a moment, makes sense for that team and what they do. Now, NFC West metrics that matter. That's up ahead on episode 114 of this go show. Mark Schofield back with you now on episode 114 of the Sco show. Probably a part of the Pat's Pulpit Podcast Network and brought to you by the great folks at SB Nation. Continue with some metrics that matter. This is part of the ongoing series I have over at USA Today's Touchdown Wire. We're going to talk some NFC West teams now. Obviously, we've got the defending NFC champions, the San Francisco 49ers in the mix. But we kick it off with a team that, with good reason, many expect to have a huge leap forward in 2020. And that's the Arizona Cardinals, right? You have the potential for the year two quarterback leap with Kyler Murray. You've got the fact that of all the sort of year two quarterbacks, right? Murray, Daniel Jones, Dwayne Haskins, Drew Locke, Jared Stidham. Yes, he's a year two guy. And Gardner Minshew. You know, Murray's probably in the best position for success, right? Some of those guys are facing new offensive coordinators, such as 
Jones, Haskins, Locke. Murray has an offensive-minded head coach in Cliff Kingsbury, so he's in the same system. You add in DeAndre Hopkins. That's a nice little way to start off your sophomore year as a QB, right? But if they are to take that leap, there is one thing that certainly has to be cleaned up from Murray. And that's how he handles pressure. He was sacked 48 times last year. That was tied with Russell Wilson and Matt Ryan for most in the league. But there's more than just the sack numbers themselves that are a cause for concern. Murray needs to get better handling that pressure. Russell Wilson, we know what he can do. He's a wizard under pressure. We're going to talk about that a bit in a moment. But he had an adjusted completion percentage of 66.7 last year and went under pressure, which was 7th best in the league. Ryan? Adjusted completion percentage when pressured of 66.5, eighth best in the league, right behind Russell Wilson. Kyler Murray, his adjusted completion percentage when pressured came in at 56.7, ranking him 25th among qualified passers. That put him ahead of players like Josh Allen and Mitchell Trubisky, but behind guys like Sam Darnold, Kyle Allen, and fellow sophomore quarterback now Daniel Jones. So it's not so much that the 48 sacks are the issue. It's how he handles the pressure. Because if he's getting sacked 48 times, but he's putting up numbers like Ryan and Wilson are putting up, it's not that much of an issue. But if he's getting pressured so often, but struggles in the face of that pressure, the offense is going to struggle. Now, the addition of DeAndre Hopkins is certainly going to help. But similar to the discussion around Daniel Jones, Murray needs to get better with his internal clock getting the ball out, making faster decisions. And that's sometimes what happens in that year one to year two bridge. And so that's what to watch for with the Arizona Cardinals. Then we get to the Los Angeles Rams, a team that was two years removed from an appearance in the Super Bowl now. Last year they struggled. Part of that, play action. They were so good at play action the year they made it to the Super Bowl. And part of that was Sean McVay, his ability to scheme stuff up. They were so effective running the football out of 11 personnel. They were pretty much a primarily 11 personnel team. Their outside zone stuff was great. And in 2018, Goff saw a jump in yards per attempt of 2.5 yards when using play action versus traditional dropbacks. That was fifth most, fifth best in the league. He led the league with 15 touchdown passes on play-action throws. He was the only quarterback to eclipse 2,000 yards passing when using play-action. He had an NFL passer rating of 115.0 when using play-action, sixth best in the league. But teams started to figure them out. As Patriots fans, you know this perhaps better than anybody, right? How they slowed down McVay and that offense in the Super Bowl. Using quarters, ignoring all the jet motion and the movement, just playing base coverages. And yes, showing Goff one look before the radio and his helmet turned off. And then once that did, showing him a different look and putting it on the quarterback's mind himself. But teams started to copy that into 2019. Teams started using those concepts, those ways to slow them down. What did that mean for Goff in 2019? An NFL passer rating of just 85.9 when using play action, ranking him 23rd in the league among 24 qualified passers. Just four touchdown passes when using play action, but five interceptions. How are they going to fix that? What they did in the second half of the year. First part of the year, they tried to do what they were doing in 2018, right? A lot of wide zone, outside zone, stuff like that. 
during that early part of the season, Goff's passer rated on play action from weeks one to nine in that first half of the season was 78.6, dead last in the league. But then in weeks 10 to 17, his passer rated on play action jumped to 91.7. Obviously not where it was in 2018, but a huge jump from where it was in the first half of the season. Why? They started using more inside zone and duo and gap power, working off of the inside running game. That became a bit more effective allowing Goff to be more effective then using play action off of those designs. And what did they do this offseason? They drafted Cam Akers, a guy that did some of his best work between the tackles, particularly between right guard and right tackle. Pro Football Focus charted him with 221 yards and 6.7 yards per attempt on runs between the right guard and right tackle for four touchdowns. If they get to that sort of north-south game, they're going to be a bit better running the football, and it, as we've seen, a bit better throwing off of play action. So that's something to watch for the Los Angeles Rams. Let's get to our last two teams here. We start with the San Francisco 49ers, defending NFC champions, minutes away from winning the Super Bowl. What's the number I'm watching when it comes to the Niners? 28% how close or even how much they surpassed that number by. What is that? That's the amount of times that they used 21 offensive personnel, which was most in the league. It accounted for 312 of their offensive plays, well beyond the 8% that the league averaged in terms of using that personnel group. And what did they do when they used 21 personnel? They ran a successful play 55% of the time. Again, a play is successful when it gains at least 40% of the yards to go on first down, 60% of the yards to go on second down, and all of the yards to go on third or fourth downs. When they used 11 personnel, they were successful in just 43% of their plays. And they were successful both running and passing out of 21 personnel. They were successful on 55% of their rushing plays, averaging 5.7 yards per carry. When they threw it, they were successful 54% of the time. Garoppolo completed 82 of, 15, uh, 82 of 115 passes for an NFL passer rating of 103.3 when thrown out of 21, 9.7 yards per attempt, and 7.3 air yards per attempt. That 9.7 yards per attempt out of 21, much higher than his season average of 8.4, and the 7.3 air yards per attempt, much higher than his season average of 6.6. Now, when you have Kyle Juszczyk and George Kittle, you could be successful with 21 personnel, right? But what struck me was how they were successful running the football because conventional wisdom has taught us that you throw out of heavy and you run out of light, right? We just got done talking about the Rams and how they would run out of 11 personnel. But they were successful running the football as well. And it starts with juice check. Sometimes they would use pre-snap motion to sort of create an extra gap and they could still outflank you even running against your base defense out of 21 personnel. And so I'm very curious to see if they're continually successful as they were last year or if, like we saw with the Rams, the teams around the league start to figure it out. And finally, we'll close out this show with the Seattle Seahawks. And although we changed it a bit 
with the 49ers, most of these metrics that matter pieces talk about a number that was bad and how they're trying to make it better. But with Seattle, it's a bit different because as you heard like 10 minutes ago, Russell Wilson was sacked 48 times last year, tied for most in the league with Matt Ryan and Kyler Murray. But it might not be that bad. According to Pro Football Focus, Wilson had an NFL passer rating of 119.6 from clean pockets last year, right? Fifth best among qualified passers. His 26 passing touchdowns from clean pockets led the league. But when pressured, on his 202 pressure dropbacks, excuse me, On his 243 pressure dropbacks, Wilson completed 85 of 168 passes for 1,217 yards and 10 touchdowns with just two interceptions. His completion percentage while pressured was ninth best in the league. His NFL passer rating when pressured was fifth best in the league. Wilson thrives in pressure, and it's something that we've seen from him over his career. He's good from clean pockets, as I just told you, but he's also good when pressured. And this has led me to think that, like many Seahawks writers do, Ben Baldwin and others, they need to be throwing more, not running more. Many people think Seattle needs to protect Wilson and run the ball more, right? Last year, for example, the Seahawks threw the ball in just 54% of their offensive snaps, making them the sixth lowest team in pass and play percentage. But if you look at expected points added, Wilson had an EPA per dropback of 0.18, eighth most in the league. The Seattle ground game had an EPA of minus 0.7 per run and play, which ranked them 17th in the league. Now, EPA might be noisy, but let Russell Wilson work. That's just me. I'm just a guy with experience being an insurance attorney. That will do it for today. I will be back Monday. What we're going to do, I don't know yet. I'll figure it out. Until then, friends, stay safe. Check in on your loved ones. Check in on your neighbors. Wash those hands. And when you do, sit along and bless those Patriots reigns down in Foxborough.